Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is our 389th, or 89th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Justin Holmes, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Northern Iowa, and we're going to be talking about the 2020 elections. Our history buffs for today's show are Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapp Savile. Our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farukta Naran, and we'll be talking about the 2020 elections with Dr. Justin Holmes, an associate professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. Welcome to the show, Justin. It's good to be here. We're glad to have you. Uh, can you give us a little background on the major issues that seem to play out first at the national and then the state elections, if that's possible? Sure. Uh, so, you know, every election sort of has a, a theme, I suppose. And, uh, you know, to a large extent, uh, you know, I'd say the 2020 election is sort of a referendum on President Trump. Um, he is, you know, clearly a, a very prominent and, and polarizing figure. Uh, and I think one of the things that stood out to me uh, about this election compared to others uh, is that it really largely hinged on kind of approval and disapproval of, of one person, uh, and that being, uh, that being the incumbent. Uh, you know, a couple other things, uh, and we can certainly unpack some of these uh, down the road, uh, is, you know, it's quite unusual to do a, an election under the circumstances that we've done this one under, uh, the, the COVID uh, pandemic and, and all of the logistical challenges uh, that that, that uh, presents as well. So I think that's an important thing that really shapes, you know, the logistics of campaigning and, and actually the act of voting. Okay. Um, to go along that line, uh, the political pundit, when they asked uh, Mr. Former Clinton advisor James uh, Carville, what was this election defined as? He said, it's COVID-19, stupid, kind of paraphrasing what he said about the economic status in the 1990s. Uh, do you think that applies in this election or do you think it's more complex than that? I think it's it's more complex. You know, I, I think that's part of the story. Uh, I, I think there's there's nothing at this point in 2020 that you know COVID isn't a big chunk of the story. But one of the things that was really striking uh, is that you know if you look at the polling and and the polling certainly had some problems this year, but if you look at the margin between Biden and and Trump, you know, for the whole time it was pretty static. Um, you know, you would have expected COVID to have more of an impact uh, on on vote choice. And uh, in the end, you know, kind of the pre-COVID polls and the early COVID polls and the, you know, polls down towards the end uh, typically had Biden ahead and, and, you know, by a fairly consistent margin. Um, I think part of it is that, you know, there was a divide, uh, kind of an importance, the, the two most important issues uh, to people right now appear to be COVID and the economy. And each of those sort of favored one of the one of the candidates. So, uh, you know, it's a little more than just COVID all the time. Okay, Justin, I'm going to kind of follow up on John's question because uh, Trump, 
is going to be the first for one term president we had till uh, all the way back to George Bush senior and in that election it very much was the economy this is an election that seems to be much more about personality can you talk a little bit about that and how those that that played out this year yeah um so you know a, a conventional wisdom thing that i really think the data backs up is that a lot of a lot of elections and a lot of presidential approval is is really a factor of economic performance um and it's exactly what you'd expect uh if the economy is good it's good for the incumbent if the economy is bad it's bad for the incumbent it's good for presidential approval to have a good economy and it's bad to have a bad economy and you know that's a, a keen keen insight there uh but what we've seen kind of with Trump is a decoupling uh so you know if you look at his approval uh, you know, he's substantially below where you would expect his approval to be based on the state of the economy. Uh, we can kind of predict based on past, you know, evaluations what people ought to think now. Uh, and, you know, the Trump economy was, uh, at least up until COVID, was pretty good. Uh, and, you know, he was underperforming what you'd expect by about 15 points. And I think a lot of that is his personality. You know, he is... Uh, clearly, you know, a, a provocative personality, uh, you know, whether you like him or you don't like him, uh, you know, he's very out there, he's very in your face, uh, and he's very present. Uh, you know, if, if you think about sort of how much news Trump makes and how much Twitter he does and, and things like that, you know, he's just very much more there and much more the center of attention, I think, than a typical president is. And and I think that's a, a lot of, you know, the, the backlash to him is, is that, you know, there are people that might like him on policy, but just really he rubs them the wrong way. Um, and for people that already were predisposed not to like him on policy, uh, you know, I think his personality is, is strongly motivating as a get out the vote sort of thing. So let's take that um, in kind of a different direction. Many um, pundits have come out and said that the problem that Donald Trump had all along was that he never expanded his base, that the people that got him into the, uh, the presidency in 2016 that were incredibly hardcore, he did everything he could to make sure that it was perceived that he had their backs. But... He never really tried to expand to win over other voting blocks. And there's some critics coming out in the last week saying that that was a total misjudgment because the people that were supporting him, kind of like what you were saying, were going to support him anyway. And that he could have possibly mellowed the message in some areas, especially with the issue of COVID-19, and won people back that helped him win the first time or maybe get some more. What is your take on that, or is this, you know, I mean, but some pundits would say he is who he is. So how do you read that? Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he, he, his personality is priced into it. You know, he is who he is. But uh, I, I would tend to agree. Um, you know, I, I've used the phrase a couple times describing him that, you know, he lost the popular vote by about 2% and, and tried to govern like he won it by 15 um, you know, there was very, very little outreach uh, to other groups, uh, and not just in terms of policy, but in terms of tone as well. Um, you know, there are ways that you can 
yeah, we have a lot of conflict. I mean, we in politics, and we have a lot of disagreement. That's why we have politics in the first place. But you can be more conciliatory towards the other side, even while disagreeing on policy. And and he was very much not. Uh, you know, you're either kind of on board with me, or you're a loser, or you're on board with me, or you're the enemy. Um, and I think that really does turn people off. Um, I do sort of agree. Uh, you know, to, to bring the COVID back to it a little bit. Um, I think had the COVID response been more successful or even just a little more active looking in the first place, that that might have been enough to help him out. Uh, you know, I've seen several pundits, and I, I kind of agree, uh, you know, if he had spun this into sort of a really successful uh, really successful public health strategy, uh, that that might have actually overcome some of the personality stuff. But, you know, instead, uh, you know, he gives these rambling press conferences that are just about him and how unfair everybody is to him and, and whatnot. Um, and it just kind of reinforced people's priors at that point. Um, Justin, this will have to be our last question for this first segment. We've talked a lot about the, the president. Um, let's stay on the national stage, but let, let's look at um, the congressional races, particularly the Senate. Um, Democrats were hoping that Joe Biden would have a big coattail, that people's frustration with Trump would carry down into Congress. It, it doesn't appear to have done that. I mean, Democrats stayed in control of the House. Um, but it looks like they will maybe have only picked up one, maybe two, if something in Georgia weird happens, um, mm -hmm. and still not be in control of the Senate. So can you kind of finish this segment talking about what went on sort of at the congressional level? I think we're still trying to unpack that a little bit, um, or a lot, because that's a huge surprise. Uh, you mentioned the coattails effect, and, and we see that pretty consistently. You know, whoever wins... Uh, you know, whoever wins uh, the presidency typically picks up seats in both the House and the Senate, with a few caveats. But, boy, not like we had this year, where, uh, you know, the House uh, Democrats lost a number of seats and Republicans picked up quite a number. A couple hypotheses, I suppose, and I, I don't know, we can perhaps test these down the road someday when sort of some of the polling comes in. Um, you know, one possibility is just that, you know, the coattails thing is often about conditions. Uh, so, you know, the metaphor is that the, the president is pulling along his party. But part of it is just that, you know, some years are going to be a good year to be a Republican and some aren't. And some of this could be the gap between sort of national conditions and uh, the president's personality uh, is that, you know, on the whole, this isn't a bad year to be a Republican. It's just not a good year to be Donald Trump. Another possibility uh, is that, you know, people aren't totally on board with, with Democrats either. And there may have been some ticket splitting. I think we definitely saw that in the main Senate race uh, where, you know, they actually have a preference for divided government on some level, you know, so they're repudiating Trump, but they don't necessarily want to give Biden kind of a lot of, of colleagues to work with and sort of a big liberal mandate. Uh, and so, you know, what you may be seeing is people consciously making the decision uh, to kind of keep government divided. All right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University. 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, 
Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Justin Holmes, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Northern Iowa, and we're talking about the 2020 elections. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. And Rick, as a former politician yourself, at least you got your toe wet, you get the first question. And I should point out I did not succeed in my election uh, attempt, but that was... 4,000 years ago. <laughs> I think it was a fraudulent count, Rick. Do a recount. Was, I think yeah. you won. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Justin, I was uh, curious in the in the first section uh, talking about the, the uh, gap between Trumpism and maybe who the true um, uh, Republicans are. And I, I know that uh, just finished reading a... a an editorial by Art Collins, a Stormlink uh, newspaper, talking about the impact of socialism, the fact that socialism was was uh, pushed as a buzz phrase, and the fact that at least in Iowa, uh, the Republicans uh, hustled 10,000 new Republican voters. So uh, I, I would like to have you explore that uh, uh, you know, is Trump, uh, I'm not going to say dead because we're on public radio, but uh, as a Republican, are the Republicans, because of their local congressional uh, uh, election successes, are they going to abandon Trumpism and, and uh, hopefully come back to what Michael Gertzman has said in his editorial, the true Republican Party? You know, I think that's a really interesting question. And and to an extent, I've been trying for the last four years to sort of get my head around what what Trumpism is. Um, You know, I had some long talks. I had a a really involved uh, student uh, four years ago who was really involved in Republican politics, and, and we would spend some time in office hours talking about this. And you know, I, I think the, the I'm not sure that, that Trumpism itself is so much a, a shift in policy as sort of a shift in tone and attitude. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, if you look at Trump's policies, they're fairly standard Republican positions, um, you know, that they've had for a long time, which is lower taxes, less government regulation, things like that. I think the couple things that were different, perhaps, would be trade, uh, would be a clear break uh, with a, a more isolationist uh, trade program, uh, and 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 the other would be sort of the emphasis on immigration. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, Republicans have always been 
in favor of, of less immigration. And in fact, John McCain at one point talked about building a wall, you know, back in, in 2012. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the tone feels very different. Um, and I'm not sure. You know, I feel like there are some younger Republicans that have sort of picked that up and, and rolled with it. Uh, the uh, Madison Crawthorn in uh, North Carolina, uh, for example. But I do wonder if, you know, assuming that Trump loses, uh, you know, once all the counts are in and things, I, I do wonder if there will be sort of a branding change there. You know, because certainly a lot of these local Republicans that, that run, uh, that, that won, are, are not particularly Trump-like. You know, a lot of these are just your kind of standard meat and potatoes uh, sorts of Republicans. So I don't have a a clear thought of where the party's headed. Um, You know, oftentimes the party will have a reckoning after after a loss, but I I don't know what messages they're going to take out of this exactly. Ed, you got a question? Sure. Um, Dr. Holmes, kind of along those same lines, um, is there any reason to think that the Republican obstructionism of the last 10 years in the U.S. Senate uh, is not going to continue? No. <laughs> I, you know, if anything, I think – now I'll explain, but uh, no would be the easy answer to your question. Um, and, and that's, I, I think, a, a real feature uh, that, that – uh, that's been a long time coming um, – uh, Thomas Mann and Norm Ornstein have a really good book on that. Uh, actually, two really good books. Uh, the, the more current one is called It's Even Worse Than It Was. Uh, that largely kind of lays the, the gridlock in American government and Congress in particular um, at the feet of Republicans. That, you know, essentially, it, it's sort of a deliberate strategy really going back to when Newt Gingrich was speaker back in the 90s, of, you know, when you have power, when you have the White House, you push for conservative policy change. And, you know, when you don't have the White House, you do everything that you can to thwart Democrats from getting stuff done. And, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell is really good at that. Uh, I think what we've seen kind of over the last couple of years, uh, he, he doesn't seem to be very good at making actual policy happen, um, you know, in terms of getting bills passed. But he's really good at gumming up the works, um, which is is kind of enough. Uh, and I think, you know, kind of between sort of his success uh, around the Supreme Court uh, with Merrick Garland uh, and, you know, holding that seat open and ultimately getting, you know, President Trump three Supreme Court nominations. You know, I think between that and just sort of the general success he had during the late Obama years of blocking stuff, uh, you know, I think if anything, it'll reinforce that those obstructionist tendencies. There may be some compromise. I think there's going to have to be a COVID relief bill of some sort uh, in the near future. Uh, but beyond that, you know, McConnell doesn't have any incentive to cooperate, I don't think. You know, he can spend the next couple of years just saying no. Justin, I'm, I'm going to take that then one final step. Um, one of the trends that, that historians talk about over the really the last 60 years or pretty close to that is the expansion of executive power in a practical sense. Um, mm-hmm. More and more policy is being done by executive order than through uh, legislation. Um, Trump certainly functioned that way. Obama functioned that way when McConnell started gumming up the works. Um, and Biden has already said that there are a number of executive orders that he will issue on day one to sort of cancel out Trump. Um, 
executive orders. Do you see any end in sight of that? And, and what does that mean for a democracy when a, when a president is able to rule almost by uh, royal fiat? Yeah, so I think you're you're absolutely right, and and one thing that I would add to that would be kind of the increased role of the bureaucracy as well. Uh, so you know, a lot of policy making happens sort of in the rules process, uh, you know, in in the bureaucracy within the executive branch, and you know, Trump accomplished a lot. Uh, there from his perspective, you know, rolling back regulations and things like that. Um, and I, I do think that's problematic in one way and in, in other ways, you know, I mean, it's concerning, but it's maybe not fatal. Uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, these things do sort of subvert the normal process. Uh, so, you know, if you, uh, when I teach my intro to American politics class, you know, we talk about kind of how a bill becomes a law. And then we talk about all the things that are complicated beyond the textbook version of that. And, and, you know, executive orders and bureaucracy are very much that. In gridlock, you know, that was kind of Obama's point. Uh, he had the famous, you know, line, I've got the pen and I've got the phone, uh, which basically meant I'm going to call bureaucrats and I'm going to do executive orders. You know, that's how you're stuck governing uh, when Congress doesn't move. There are limits to executive orders, um, and you know the, I think the the Biden example here, uh, you know, is a good one that you know they are easily undone by the next president. Um, and uh, Richard Newstad, who is a, a political scientist focused on presidential power, he actually saw you know executive orders as a failure. Um, you know, he thought that you know a strong president gets policy made through the regular process, in part because it has some permanence. Uh, so. You know, anything that Trump has done by executive order on day one, Biden can come in and sign new executive orders and undo them. Um, I, I think the, the bigger problem there with some of these things is that you get policy that just vacillates back and forth really quickly from one president to the next. Um, so, you know, if we do it through the normal way, it's pretty hard to pass a law. And it's pretty hard to unpass a law. Uh, you know, we see that with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you know, Republicans would really like to get rid of it, and they can't because the process of getting rid of it is, is awfully hard. Uh, but with things that happen through executive orders, you know, the, your, the, the government's position on those changes every time there's a president. So you get a lot of this bouncing back and forth that's not great either. Okay. Rick, you got a question? Yes, I do. Uh, Justin, uh, it seems that one of the the, the failed strategies on the national level, at least uh, between the Republicans and the Democrats, Democrats, uh, uh, the Democratic Party went out and and campaigned for early voting, and uh, the Republicans taking Trump's lead, uh, you know, uh, the patriotic thing is to only vote on uh, November third, the day of voting. And uh, that is what uh, I think is is uh, thrown this hysterical uh, president into even more hysterics because uh, he forgot that uh, uh, a uh, absentee ballot is a vote. Is 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 that going to change in the next elections? Because I'm pretty sure the Republicans have learned their lesson. In terms of tightening rules on absentee ballots, well, actually promoting them because or promoting you know, them. Okay, yeah, because I think yeah. you actually got you had a hundred and 
what was it, 100 and almost 50 million votes, which is phenomenal for a national election for president. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a couple possibilities, um, you know, and, and where I thought you were taking that initially is that, you know, you could see states making it harder to get absentee ballots again, uh, you know, Republican controlled states, and they might. They will. They will. But yeah, I I think you know I'm I'm a big fan of early voting and and absentee voting and, and such. Um, you know, I, my bias is towards anything that makes it easier for people to vote. I think voting's important. I yes. think you know for a long time we've made it too hard. I've really I was just talking in one of my classes this afternoon. I said one of the things that's really impressed me over the time I've been doing this stuff um, is you know how much easier registration has gotten and you know how much easier it is to vote than it used to be um, and I, I think Republicans will embrace some of that early voting stuff um, you know it's odd a little bit that Trump didn't push it harder or was so anti that it was also interesting though that you know nationally he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth or at least the campaign was <laughs> you know nationally he was strongly against it and you know it's fraud and you know blah 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 uh, but his campaign was actually sending out absentee ballot applications to people. Um, and, you know, they had people, uh, I think Ivanka had an ad, a radio ad in a Republican area, uh, encouraging people to vote early. Uh, so, you know, I think if, if this sort of becomes the new norm, and given how many people did it this last time, you know, I think people like it. They like the convenience. Um, you know, I think Republicans are going to need to compete there. Uh, and I think they'll probably figure it out. You know, it's, it's not that complicated. It's always a shame that poor Tiffany is always left out. Um, it is uh, customary to give our guest, Justin, the last word on the show. Uh, why do you think knowing about the 220 election is relevant in today's world? Well, you know, I, I think every election is, is important. Um, you know, I, I think this one is, is tremendously pivotal. Um, you know, in particular, uh, you know, the transition here and some of the concerns, um, you know, this is, is sort of a key moment in, in democracy. And so I think, you know, kind of unpacking this one in particular, uh, it's going to be one that historians are going to spend a lot of time looking at, uh, you know, going forward, I think. Some elections just aren't that important, and I feel like 2020 kind of is, between the pandemic and, you know, President Trump being a person who is an interesting character, uh, to say the least. Uh, you know, I think this is one that, that will be sort of a, a historical one of importance. Okay. All right. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2.
This concludes our 389th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Justin Holmes, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Northern Iowa. We've been talking about the 2020 elections. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.